Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Then often becomes a dynamic in relationships, as which we often see, where women have an expectation that this should be a shared space. We're both, you know, we both have careers. We're both financially contributing financially to the house. We both have our, you know, our own aspirations of what we want to do um, with our careers. And yet, I now have absorbed this this level of responsibility. Mm. And there's a lot of anger and frustration. Maybe when Dad comes into this space and you know is not necessarily up to speed on what I need, on what on what needs to be done. Um, and then it feels like they're carrying the burden. I'm your host, Natalie Dronovac, and this is The Modern Women, a show that seeks to share the stories and experiences of women that may be out of our line of sight. While in previous episodes and in my personal offline discussions with friends, I've touched on notions of mental health and well-being, I never felt that I dove deep enough into an issue that is so pervasive in society. There is no denying that mental health is extremely important. But due to how broad mental health can be, I first wanted to delve into one area where I see and hear about the suffering of women, and that's perimenatal mental health. Post-birth can be challenging for mothers, but it wasn't until I sat down with today's guests, Fiona and Inga, both clinical psychologists specialising in perinatal mental health, that I truly began to see its pervasiveness and impact on women. Furthermore, society is seemingly not responding adequately. If I could take away only one thing from this episode, it's that a woman's mental health during pregnancy and post-birth is everyone's responsibility and not just the mother's. At the end of today's episode, if you feel how I do and that this important message needs to be shared, then please share it with the men and women in your life. And be sure you're also reaching out to those in your life who spring to mind. If you love this episode or any other episodes of the podcast, make sure you are subscribed wherever you love to listen so you don't miss any upcoming episodes for when they go live. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you for Thank having you. us. Yes. Let's kick off with your rapid fire. So what is a modern woman to you? Somebody who knows who she is and doesn't apologise for it. Um, I think someone who can be anything they want to be. What's your drink of choice after a hard day's work? Uh, either a gin and tonic or a glass of Chardonnay. Has to be the gin and tonic for me. I'm a real fan of Four Pillars Gin at the moment. Oh, Have you had that gin? Yes, the Shiraz. I've had them all, so yeah. that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, what's one word that you would use to describe yourself? Containing. Um, passionate. What's one word that you would use to describe each other? So I would describe Fiona as quick. Um, and Inga as clear. 
I like that. Um, and because there are three of us on the mics today, I would love if you could individually just introduce yourself, your names, and perhaps your background. Okay, so I, my name is Inga, and I'm a clinical psychologist, and I work in adult mental health and women's perinatal mental health. And uh, my name is Fiona. Um, I'm also a clinical psychologist. Uh, my background has been child and family work, and I work there and also in um, the perinatal space as well. Perfect. Thank you. So the thing that I actually really want to start with, because I know that I've certainly been confused over the years, is the difference between these professions when it comes to being a clinical psychologist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, a therapist, a counselor. So whether or not you want to spring between each other, Mm -hmm. but just so people have clarity around actually the different professions, because they're not all the same. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, do you want to do you want to start there? Yeah, I can start. Um, psychiatrist is a medical professional, so they've got their general medical degree. Then they've gone on to a specialty training, so they probably have done at least another four to six years post medical degree in psychiatry. Um, psychiatry probably is a little bit more focused on um, acute mental health, um, and obviously they they were the they are the people that are doing the medica- you know, taking care of the medication side of things. Mm-hmm. And a clinical psychologist, you do a four-year science or arts degree with honours and then you do a two-year master's degree in clinical psychology and um, you take more of a behavioural and cognitive approach. So you're not looking at things from necessarily a medical perspective but more of a life-functioning perspective and how you can help people see things differently or change their behaviour to improve their mental health. And then what about when someone says they're going to a counsellor? So that could refer to anything really. Um, probably mm. not a psychiatrist. I mean, when we we might get referred to as counsellors. Um, there's lots of other qualifications you could you know do to get to become a counsellor. You could do a diploma in um, you know in counselling. So it's kind of a generic term that can encompass everyone, anyone who's probably dealing with, I guess, mental health concerns or just people that might want to yeah, just chat talk, through a, just talk yeah, through some issues. Issue. Yeah, yep. and and often if somebody is just struggling with a situation but might not necessarily have a mental health diagnosis, they might go see a counsellor. Mm-hmm. But if somebody has a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder or depression, they're probably more likely to be referred to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. Is it important for people to know the difference to then understand which one that they should be going to? Like, do people sometimes mm-hmm. get confused as to where they end up? Uh, I don't think they really. I don't think they really do. I mean, often the first port of call is your GP mm. if people mm. are struggling, and then the GPs will often channel through to the appropriate Person. health professional. Yeah, and in many times, like I think you know maybe psychiatry separate because I mean obviously because they're doing quite a specialised um, job there but often it just depends on how well you connect to the person so as opposed to their formal qualifications clearly there are some things that need to be seen by certain people but for lots of things it could just be you know does this person you know do we have a good connection yeah Yeah. it's also really important yeah it's not uncommon for people to see a couple of different psychologists or counsellors before they find someone that they connect with yeah click with yeah definitely I totally have. I totally agree with that because mm. I do have one and I'm always like, oh, she's amazing. I refer to everyone. I'm like, she's a, she's a real mm. winner. Um, so I would love to understand what drew you both to the field. And I know we were touching on mm. it just before. So. Yeah. so, well, I think I probably knew from early high school that I wanted to be a psychologist. I think I was really interested in the human condition, what made people tick, loved literature. So just exploring different personality types. I don't think I really had a a clear, clear understanding of what a psychology degree was about because it's quite different when you get there. It's much more science-based. Mm. Um, but, yeah, just understanding what made people work, I guess. Yeah. What about you, Fee? 
Yeah, and for me it was, um, I definitely wanted to get into that helping space. It was around, and I always kind of wanted to work with children, so that was a prime driver. Um, so something in that kind of allied health field. Um, and then I think psychology offers that, you know, lovely balance between science and humanities. Mm. Um, it is clinical, but it's also, you know, understanding, you know, how our brains work, how we work, how we re- relate to other people. So, yeah, yeah it was... Well, I've never, never, never regretted it. So, have you found that um, it's also allowed you to better understand your own personal relationships and friendships? I've, I'd say yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. But do your friends ever have that moment where they're like, "Are you being my shrink right now?" Um, maybe we get a, possibly we might get accused of being a little bit maybe too direct, too you know. Yeah, too I intense. think actually it's about <laughs> having awareness. Yeah. We're probably quite conscious of not overstepping that mark unless you're asked. So there's a classic mm. saying, you know, don't give advice unless you're asked <laughs> for it. So so it's knowing when mm. not to, even though you might have a lot of insight into what's going on for somebody, um, I'm very careful and, and you're better I'm probably more careful <laughs> at not <laughs> offering that advice unless yeah. it's asked for because, I mean, one of the things mm. that you become really skilled at as a psychologist, and we've talked about this, V, mm. and it's not something you're taught at university, but is when somebody comes to see you and you're listening to their life and you're just making sense of it in your head as they're speaking. And by the time they've finished telling you about your, their life, you've kind of got this model in your head of, of what's going on, what's contributing, what's maintaining, what we need to work on. And so it's very hard to switch that off when you're just chatting to somebody, but you don't necessarily want them to think that that's how you're you're reading their life. So it, it's, it's about, you know, knowing that that's going on in your brain, but knowing when to try and quieten it down so that you can just be there as a friend. Yeah, that's right. No, I agree with that. That quick, quick to assess. I think yeah. quick to form on a judgment or yeah. opinion. And as my sister often says, me so judgmental. <laughs> so yeah, we probably do it more with family. Yes. Yeah, and our children. So and our partners. It, yes, and exactly yeah. that line between being having it, forming a view, versus exp- always Have, having that. to express yeah. it. So something I'd love to um, understand is that if you've had any unique experiences that you've faced being a female psychologist that you think your male counterparts might not have? And I ask that because I've also had a doctor on the podcast and her experience as a female surgeon Mm. versus um, all the male surgeons were remarkably different. Yeah, that's an interesting question for psychologists because we are, we are, you know, massively dominated by females. So, Mm. I mean, I think I can count on one hand. I think we had two, two men in our psychology degree we had very few males in our psychology degree what I would say though is that the men in the profession tend to very quickly rise to positions of power whether it be in academia or running their own practice Mm -hmm. Um, so there are a few practices Mm -hmm. where you might have a male principal and lots of female associates um, which is quite interesting and that probably then reflects though that many women take a pause and have babies and work part-time whereas the men are just progressing and putting lots of time into their careers so I'd say that's one Mm. difference but other than that other than that they're in clinical in clinical spheres Mm. they're they tend to be a yeah most rare occurrence yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, so let's dive into perinatal mental health because prior to uh, interviewing you both as I mentioned I had never really heard of the term I don't know if that's because I I personally have no desire to not have a child um, but just my awareness of it was certainly kind of sparked mm-hmm. um, and so you both well actually you can explain your um, relationship with the Gidget Foundation just mm-hmm. to make sure that we're clear on that okay do you want to 
Should we talk a bit about the Gidget Foundation? Absolutely. I would love mm-hmm. to understand it because as I started kind of looking and researching, mm-hmm. I thought, wow, what a wonderful space. Mm-hmm. If I was ever in a position where I needed it, it would be a great place to go to. Yeah. Um, so the Gidget Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation that provides um, b- both raises awareness and provides clinical support to kind of expectant and new parents. So that's kind of what we do. Um, and so we both contract to the Gidget Foundation. So we're clinical psychologists. So we, um, along with actually don't I should know, but I don't know how many. I think we've got f- about fifty psychologists now, both on board. through the telehealth and the face-to-face yeah, psychology. It's expanding rapidly. Yeah. Um, so, and we provide we provide face-to-face therapy, um, face-to-face you know intervention um, for people that are struggling with either mood or anxiety, either before having prior to having a baby or in that kind of twelve months mm. following um, following delivery. Um, and they also provide um, kind of like a telehealth or outreach service, so people who can't don't live near a, a practitioner who might be qualified in perinatal mental health. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what yeah. we do. In and I guess the other the other aspect of it is that because it's a charitable organisation, uh, the foundation provides all the infrastructure, um, and the psychologists are then able to bulk bill. So there's no cost to the clients, which is really special. And could you introduce the listeners to the field of perinatal mental health and why it matters? Goodness. So perinatal mental health is the treatment of anxiety, depression, psychosis, any kind of mental health problem that you might experience whilst pregnant or in the 12 months after having a baby. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also be present for some of our clients who are trying for a long time to have a baby and might have experienced multiple losses. So they're kind of also included under that umbrella. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the broad, that's broad the broad, umbrella. Yeah. Um, I guess if we're kind of moving on to what we see, is that, is yeah, that I would love question, to understand. I would absolutely love to understand, I guess, the symptoms and the common traits mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I know for me that I've only really ever heard a lot about postnatal depression. Yes. yes. So really distinguishing yeah. the differences so people can become yeah. aware. Well, I mean, one, I think one important distinction is a distinction, often you hear the term the baby blues being thrown around a lot. And so that's that usually refers to that period, maybe two weeks, after having a baby where there's high levels of emotional reactivity and adjustment. And that, you know, that's reported to occur in about 80% of new mums. And I guess when that doesn't settle or if the feeling's more intense, um, that when we might be looking at, you know, is this kind of a looking at a, you know, postnatal depression or often postnatal anxiety, which is equally as common. Um, and, you know, often associated with the kind of symptoms we're looking at of people saying um, periods of teariness, low mood, feelings of worthlessness, um, guilt, I guess it's just a general sense of hopelessness around the future uh, and a feeling that this might, this won't change. Um, mm. Do you want to talk about the anxiety aspects of it? Or? Well, yeah, and, and I guess often you see functional changes in a person's mm. ability to cope. So they might not be able to um, manage to leave the house or their self-care goes downhill mm-hmm. or they feel like they're struggling to attach and bond to their baby. They might be having panic attacks or feeling um agitated a lot of the time you often get insomnia so you spend half the night trying to get your baby to sleep and they're finally asleep and then you can't fall asleep and that's a common anxiety symptom of new parents and I guess that you know the including of the perinatal and broadening it from just postnatal depression is the recognition that for many women who um, have these struggles around adjustment to parenthood these symptoms might start in pregnancy it's not just that it happens after you've had the baby 
And yeah, and I think lots of people, obviously you're more at risk of developing um, postnatal depression or anxiety if you have a pre-existing, if you've experienced depression or anxiety mm. in the past. Um, but I think a lot of the factors that might also affect it are things like, um, I guess, the level of support you might be getting from your partner, um, if you have family living close by and probably also what kind of baby you have. So if you have a really settled baby, um, baby that's highly predictable, easy to care for, and I guess also the birth. We haven't mentioned yep. all the stuff yep. around the birth. Around birth, birth trauma. Yep. Yeah. Um, and can... premature babies. Yes. Yeah. When things don't go according to plan. Yep. So that's So whenever big... things don't go according to plan, and that's a big thing, um, having realistic expectations of what you're walking into is a, is a really big um, protective or risk factor for women. Yeah, let's dive mm. into um, birth trauma because I, as I was looking at this interview, I thought mm. to myself, wow, you know, I have no idea that this happens for women, that it happens at such an alarming rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would love to understand more, not just for myself, but also mm. for then other friends who yeah. I know are expecting and just, you know, how we can all be better. Mm. So I guess, mm. look, I, I mean, we could come back to this yeah. idea of um, women having realistic expectations of how much control we're going to have when we get into that birth suite or when we're going to go into labour and and what's going to happen through that process. Mm -hmm. I think the more flexible we can be in terms of, you know, it might go smoothly, I might have a natural delivery or I might need an epidural or perhaps I might need an emergency C-section, you know, our expectations of how that's going to go will influence how well we can adjust when things kind of don't go to plan. For some women, they might have really, really flexible expectations, but what happens in the birth is so unexpected or so Mm -hmm. distressing that they still may have issues processing that. So for example, you know, if the baby goes into distress or needs to go into special care or if there've been a lot of blood loss or, you know, mum or bub's life is at risk, mm. then that will be really distressing afterwards. But we also have women who um, might've just had a really strong desire to have a natural labour and have no pain relief and it just doesn't go to plan. And those women can still, even though mum's mm-hmm. healthy and baby's healthy, may still have uh, lots of difficulty adjusting to that. Would Definitely, and need a lot of space to talk that yep. through. Um, yeah, and I think that a lot of you know people's personalities, um, exactly pre-existing anxiety or um, trauma, they can all yep. they can all come to the surface as well. Yeah. So, um, in how I guess in how flexibly you can I just adapt to whatever whatever happens. Um, yep. And I think you're right, Fee, when you talk about the needing to talk it through. Mm-hmm. So for those women who have had those tricky birth experiences, just giving them a really safe place to sit and tell their story over and over again until they're feeling more comfortable. And even when it goes according to plan, everyone wants to tell their birth Everyone. Story. I mean, yeah. that's just, yeah. that you can spend half a session on that yes. after a baby's arrived. Yeah, and so. just reliving the memories of just, you know, the, that need to share what yeah. happened. Yeah. So powerful. I mean, I'm sure both, I mean, Again, we're not we're not talking about personal experience, but we we can both. I mean, our first babies, you could I could retell that story yeah, minute absolutely. by minute, absolutely. you know, thirteen years ago. Very, very Did uh, were you working in perinatal prior to having your own children? No, no. Oh, okay, so you you had your own children and then you worked in perinatal. So, I mean, did you kind of have at least an understanding of okay, these women might feel these things because you've gone through your own experiences yourself and be able to empathise? Or De- yeah, definitely. I think yeah. those two spaces you come back and forth. They interact. Yeah, 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 your own experiences. Your, I mean, you know, just being able to remember what that was like for yourself mm. is um, 
critical. Something yeah. that kind of peaked for me was, do you find that women who are having these experiences after giving birth, um, is there any, or those who aren't connecting to their children or anything like that, do women have shame if they're not or are people freely accepting mm. the feelings that they're experiencing? Are they denying them? Because the statistic that I found and I was sharing with both of you um, from Beyond Blue was depression and anxiety can affect women at any time in their life, but there is an increased chance during pregnancy and the year following the birth of a baby. Up to one in 10 women experience depression while they are pregnant and one in six women experience depression during the first year after birth. So when I read that, I just mm. thought, wow, mm. I would have had no idea that it is such an alarming rate. Mm. So are women accepting that they're feeling this way? Are we denying it? Is there shame? Mm. Well, I think that's, I mean, just firstly, shout out to the Gidget Foundation. One of the things they've done is actually this idea of we need to start talking about this because there has been so much reluctance, yeah. I think, for women to actually say, this is my experience. Here I am struggling. Mm. And I think that's mainly due to expectations. We have such a strong, um, whether it's a cultural narrative saying that this, you know, this is going to be wonderful. You're going to fall in love with your baby the minute you see your, you know, um, you're going to adjust to this. You're going to be walking around in this bliss bubble and it's all, mm. got, you know, yes, it'll be hard, but I'll be, you know, so content. Um, and I think that's, it's that disconnect between your lived experience and what, you know, the pressure you put on, maybe the pressure or the perceived pressure that society mm. puts on you. Huge, you huge pressure as, as mother, mm. as, you know, the Madonna, mm. the ideal, you know, floating around looking beautiful mm. in her amazing maternity wear like right. we see on social media yes. all the time, which doesn't yeah. help at yes. all. Um, so certainly there's a huge amount of stigma and shame associated with postnatal depression and the Gidget Foundation mm. uh, has done an extraordinary job in bringing this conversation out and normalising it, saying lots of women go through this. And so having that conversation at a societal level is really important for reducing the stigma and shame shame um, and so too is screen, routinely screening all women after they've had a baby so there's been a big push for midwives for early childhood nurses for obstetricians for gps to be administering standardized uh, assessment scales such as the edinburgh postnatal depression scale and and noticing whether a, a woman is at risk and then referring really quickly and also telling women that it's really common um, it's nothing to be ashamed of and we can have help readily available mm. makes a big difference to getting women in quickly which is really really important for postnatal depression because we're not just dealing with a mum we're dealing with a very vulnerable infant mm. um, and so early and effective treatment of postnatal depression is also really important early intervention for babies as and, well yeah and I think it's those, those two things you know you never get often when we see people who've come to the other side of um you know, that first 12 months or an episode of postnatal depression or anxiety and there's a lot of sadness and grief. They can't get that time back again and mm. that's, you know, you only get that once with each yeah. baby and so much goes on for yourself and as Inga was saying, for the for the baby. So when we've got a mum who is um, experiencing low mood, um, agitation, preoccupation, high levels of anxiety, they're not necessarily in the baby space. And what we know is babies need their carers to be very present, very emotionally available mm -hmm. and very connected to them. And that's hard to do if things aren't going so well emotionally mm -hmm. for you. So if we can get in there early. It, yeah. It's like that idea of, as women, there's a whole other layer that we just need to be perfect at again. 
Don't well, we don't want to. We don't want to use that language. Perfect, no, 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 no. But the pressure. <laughs> but that's the, the pressure. pressure. I mean, that's that's, that's actually, the pressure, that's, and that's, that's right. what we see. And and there's a whole narrative around this concept of intensive mothering, which is part of a Western phenomenon in particular, mm-hmm. where mothers are supposed to be endlessly available yep. on yep. top of everything. You know, good at everything, experts on everything to do with their children, and that we put everything else on hold while we focus on this, and whilst doing it, we're all also supposed to thrive and become more and and be you know completely fulfilled by this role um, which then serves to keep women in a very restric- restricted place but also um, you know it's unrealistic no yeah. no mother is like that well that's um, what I meant by yeah. perfect it wasn't oh, yeah. me, it yes. wasn't me yes. insinuating no. that no, we no. must be <laughs> but but that's but both definitely and yeah. that um, this idea of intensive mothering is still even though women are coming becoming mothers from you know vastly different places than previous generations this is still this idea of you know no one wants to be in the bad mums club we all want to do this well you know I've yet to ever come across a mother that doesn't take this job so seriously and want to do you know so well at it um and you know there was when we were talking about that intensive mother I remember reading something on that topic and I can't actually remember who said this, but it's this idea of that that model gives us what we call powerless responsibility. So we have all the responsibility for mothering, all the responsibility for nurturing and loving and being, you know, taking care of this little tiny little human. Um, Yet we're not at liberty to define how we do that. There are very strict rules about what a good mother does. Mm. And so Mm. it's this kind of tricky space which women find themselves in. What would you say is the expectation that we have versus the reality that it should be or could be? Okay. So in an ideal world, what that would look like? Yeah. So you obviously have both Mm. seen so many women come into Mm -hmm. the uh, clinic and then they would be presenting with symptoms or having mm. thoughts or experiences. Mm, and yeah. so there's this, here is my expectation of what I thought it would go, was going yep. to be like. And then actually, here is what most mm. women are going well, through. through. Well, I think, I think what a lot of women would say is that they would like to share that intensive model of parenting. So it's not that we don't want to be loving and present and engaged, um, But when we're doing that all of the time without a break and self-care is a huge thing for women or we're holding all of the knowledge and expertise about that baby in our head and all of the responsibility for helping that Mm. baby thrive, it can become really overwhelming. There's not much of a break from that. And so I think what women are looking for is to share that sense of responsibility and that, that sense of intensive parenting. But also, you know, one of the things we talk about is trusting the baby's cues a little bit you know babies are more competent than we sometimes give them Mm. credit for so you know learning to separate a little bit from your baby learning to let somebody else come in and help you a little bit with your baby you don't have to do all of this you don't have to do it all perfectly but I think this sense of of learning to share that responsibility um, Mm. is really important no definitely and I think Again, this is probably a period of transition in terms of probably over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years, how women are, um, you know, most women we see are transitioning back after a period of maternity leave into the workforce. So Mm -hmm. this is kind of a period where they, you know, may have six to nine to 12 months off um, and they, and this is, I think this one of the is an interesting interesting space which is happening where, you know, the woman becomes the primary carer, has the baby, and they then quickly become the expert on this little person. Um, and Annabelle Crabb talks beautifully about this in her, um, 
I think her recent quarterly, quarterly essay, essay or the, you know, the, um, and she speaks about how, you know, no one really knows what they're doing with a baby, but if you're spending, if you know, if you're not going back to work initially, you very quickly learn how to feed the baby. You go to mother's group, you learn, you absorb everyone else's tips on, on, you know, solids, on settling. And so then they often becomes a dynamic in relationships as which we often see where women have an expectation that this should be a shared space. We're both, you know, we both have careers. We're both financially contributing financially to the house. We both have our, you know, our own aspirations of what we want to do um, with our careers. And yet I now have absorbed this, this level of responsibility. Mm. And there's a lot of anger and frustration maybe when dad comes into this space and, you know, is not necessarily up to speed on what I need, on what, on what needs to be done. Um, and then it feels like they're carrying the burden. Yeah. Um, so do you see also the problem with division of labour post-birth at home? Yeah, absolutely. Oh. It's a huge – and it's a focus of women's anger in therapy, absolutely, that, Definitely. you know, prior to having the baby, everything was divided equally. We both earned good salaries. We both divided up the, the household labour and suddenly you're at home with the baby and you're doing all the cooking and all the cleaning and then what the research shows and, and Annabelle Crabb also mm, highlights mm. this on her essay is that mm. women go back to work and they continue, even though they're working, to do the lion's share of the child rearing and the household labour. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge impact. It does have a huge impact on women's mental health. Absolutely. So they're worrying about it. They're angry about it. They don't know what to do about it. Um, and then, you know, their partners are feeling attacked and there's more conflict in the house. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, having children, it can be quite a strain on relationships, can't oh. it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. that adjustment post-baby yeah. is – and that would be oh, – I, I don't know what percentage, but really high percentage of people that we see in that space. Yeah. And just normalising that, that you've gone from being a couple and now – and how do you hold on to those parts of your relationship that are separate from you guys as a family unit? Mm-hmm. And that takes time. You yeah. know, that takes – and you're doing that with – with learning how to care for a baby, how mm. to attach to a baby. Mm. Everyone's tired, everyone's sleep deprived. There might be financial stress because you know, incomes are down. Um, so it is not yeah, necessarily the easiest yeah. time. And there, yeah, there's certainly a, a large proportion yeah. of people who will report greater strain on the relationship and conflict mm. after having a baby. Mm. Yeah. So leading into um, a mother giving birth and if you're having these conversations prior to, are there conversations that you suggest that they have with their spouse? That's a that's a really good point, and mm. I think that's um, yeah. you know that's something we actually we, we, could, we, we spoke could about previously is yeah. you know how you have a um, before having a baby you have your you go to the hospital and you do a little mm. class on this is what birth is about and you do this is what caring for an infant is going to involve having a bath and we you know we have thought about that idea of would it be useful to have a workshop where you kind of re- baby-proof your relationship in a yeah, way we did, a little bit? we did talk about we that, did. didn't we? Yeah. You know, what are the conversations you should be having? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, though, that when women are coming, when they're pregnant for that first baby, they often can't even conceptualise how things are going to happen or change in that relationship once the baby comes. So when you're seeing someone when they're – and maybe this is more so for the first baby mm-hmm. – those issues haven't presented themselves and women aren't necessarily thinking, oh my goodness, you know, how are we going to divide up the labour? How is this going to become unequal? I think many women have the expectation that it's not going to change as much as it does. Mm. And then they have the baby and then they're a little shell-shocked. Yeah, and it, that's right. <laughs> that's and right. But maybe it's something that we probably should be bringing up. But, but then you don't want to create a new worry in their head 
before it's even popped That's up, right. right? You know, I don't want to. I mean, I think even just conversations around, you know, this is, it will be hard. Yeah. And how do you think it might work? Have you had that conversation yeah. with your partner? How well prepared are you? Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that we kind of talk a little bit about is this idea of this, once you've had a baby, you can't actually imagine, you can't really know what it's like to have, to attach to your baby until you've done it. It's kind mm. of, you, you don't know what, you can't know what you don't know. Mm. And it's um, once, you know, once you've fallen in love and once you've connected to the, that baby and that attachment process is establishing and, you know, developing how we like it develop, you have this constant pull between I... I, I need to be here with my baby. I need to um, – that, baby that baby's emotional needs are always front of my mind. Mm. Um, and then that, you know, it's so, – so that push between. But then actually I do want to go out. I do want to go and catch up with mm. some friends. I, you know, I do need to jump back into that workspace. And I think what happens when women have had a period um, where they've been off work and they've been that primary – um, that primary carer is their partners are not necessarily feeling that push and pull to anywhere near the same extent. So you have this kind of disconnect between your your psychological experience and a partner who may be really trying really hard to understand that, but because they haven't been a full time carer, um, and you know this might jump into that mm, the point around leave. maternity leave, paternity leave, how mm. how we kind of start yep. seeing that space and yeah, because um, certainly um, what they're seeing in countries where they have introduced really good paternity leave entitlements for dads is that dads are becoming experts on their children, are attaching more to their children. Mm -hmm. And then even when both parents are back at work, that household load is and the parenting load is much more equally shared. So yeah. I think that's what we're we're hoping our society is going to move yeah. to. I mean, what was it, point. Finland? Was it Finlandish seven, just recently? Yeah. 14, I think it was 14 14 months, months. in total with seven months for each parent. Oh, wow. Yeah. I know. And it's this idea that I think, again, which seems to be the critical factor, is it's a non-transferable part. Part of that leave has to be just for the father or just yeah. for the secondary carer. So it can't be transferable. So it's kind of a use it or lose it. So if you mm. use it, the, fa um, the family's better off financially. And I yeah. think... What I remember the statistic that in I think it was in Norway where they introduced paternity leave, the proportion of unpaid so this was dads who were taking a period of time off, maybe three months after mum had gone back to work mm -hmm. um, to care for their baby, and then in jumping forward, um, women were doing something like 39% of the unpaid labour in the household um, and that's relative to in Australia where women are still doing 80% of the mm. unpaid work. And there's a lot of research suggesting it's that period of having a time in the house where you actually are the primary carer and you're actually, I guess, firstly noticing what goes on when you mm -hmm. actually have a baby in the house, how much more household work there is. And then I think... Or just even knowing what... What to do? What to do? Because you don't, right. as you say, you don't know what you don't, don't know. know. So if you're yeah. not there, you don't even have an idea yeah. of what needs to be done. And mm. you have to be there. This is the other point. Mm. You have to be there without the other parent okay. being present. So it's only on you because if the other parent who has been the primary mm. care is pre present, it's very easy to to pass that off. And that jumps forward to the you know when we see people outside that perinatal period. Mm. So we you know, often will 
I mean, I work with families and you work with, yeah, you know, women. women as well who have not, you know, we've got older children and it's, you know, that, that term that we talk about, the mental load, the emotional load. And I think that's that extension from what you start carrying from that first year. And, mm. uh, and I mean, that is if you talk to women and saying, you know, what's, you know, what are some of the reasons why you're feeling so low, so anxious, so overwhelmed, so, so angry? Yeah. <laughs> it often comes down to... Because I have so much on my mind. I have yeah. so many balls juggling the air. And, you know, my partner loves, loves, you know, loves me, loves the children, is present. But he's, you know, he's not thinking about all these factors. You do. You see, even in the friendships I have, um, you see a, a sizable difference mm. between the mm. way a, the woman takes care yeah. of the house mm. load and chores and mm. just the day-to-day -day minutia. Yeah. And um, you're holding it. In your mind, which yeah. is why it's called the mental load, right? Mm. It's always there and you're aware, and we, we talk about this, Fee, don't we? Mm. How mm. we are always aware of what every one of our children is doing at any point in the day. We could tell you where they all are, what's likely to be going on for them, what they've mm. got on that afternoon, mm. even if we're not with them that day, even if it's a work day or whatever else. You're, you're kind of holding that in your head constantly. constantly. So you have all these people's lives in your head. You're running your own life, etc. And often the, the other parent mm. who hasn't been there doing that is just at work mm. and thinking about work which is, is yep. quite a different experience and it's and it's that and it's exactly and what's yep. fascinating with that mental load is it doesn't discriminate with how many hours the woman works or the mother mm. works so even um so you know so you could be working a full-time job and still you're Carrying holding that, that load. load and yeah you know that is that it has to be a massive yep. contributor to you know women's mental health it, well it is yeah yep. i mean it presents an anxiety overwhelm Depression. A anger. Anger. Yep. Lots of anger. Lots of frustration. Yeah. <laughs> lots of anger. Yeah, lots of irritability. Lots of anger. Yeah. Lots of anger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is a lot of, yeah, women who just, I'm just so angry all the time with my partner and yeah. irritable and I can't relax and he just doesn't understand And then they're why wondering so why angry. we're not having sex anymore and he's that's giving the right. shit because we're not having sex anymore. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That, you know, that's a whole other topic in itself. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Negotiating. Sex negotiating after baby. Sex after Goodness. baby. Yeah. So, yeah. No, is that a topic which you've spoken about quite a bit? Uh, it do, yeah, it, yep. it definitely comes up. Because yeah, that's something that I hear quips about in terms mm. of someone be like, blah, 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 and then we aren't having sex anymore. But then mm. you wonder if it's the baby or if you wonder if it's all these other factors that you're mm. now presenting. Or the fact that you just haven't slept for a week Wait. and that exactly. sleep, like if it's sleep or sex, most women will choose sleep, right? <laughs> if you've really had no sleep for three uh, months. Precisely. And it's also that fact that I think, you know, how – when you're feeding a baby, when you're nurturing, baby, if you're mm. breastfeeding or not breastfeeding, or you're, you know, it's such an, a, such an intimate, you know, there's so much physical contact with holding yeah. that baby, feeding that baby, settling that baby, and all the love hormones oh. you're receiving, you, you're you're fulfilled. Your intimacy needs, yeah. you have very yeah. low intimacy been needs, um, and that can, you know, for for many men, that feels rejecting. That mm. feels they feel on the outer. They, you know, they understand that, yeah, intellectually, but it's th still that's hard. a different space, and yeah. I mean, we've even spoken about, I mean, I remember in session with um, clients, we've spoken this idea of, um, you know, and this mismatch between, you know, wanting to have sex, actually having any desire or, you know, and your hormones are all out of whack and mm -hmm. this idea of, you know. Or just healing physically. That's right. From giving birth. So you know, it takes not, a while. <laughs> so give us a break. I read exactly. this. It's like, just let me heal down there like, before we subject it to any more trauma. That's right. There was a, <laughs> precisely. There was a, there was a, flicky that, um, that article on fatherhood and they were trying to, you know, this, I can't, I actually can't remember the context, but again, it, it was a group of men who were trying to um, make sure the new fathers had realistic expectations. And it was along these lines of saying um, any sex in the first six months is a bonus. So yep. just assume yep. 
that assume it's not going to happen. Assume it's not going to happen for six months, and yeah. if anything happens, yeah. then you know that's bonus. <laughs> so, just touching on uh, mm. what you were saying about Finland, you know, do we try to fix women or do we fix society? Oh, Sorry, so do we need to treat women or do we fix society? Um, well, I think I, society needs a lot of fixing. Yes. What do you think, Faye? I mean, I think every everyone has. I actually don't think women can probably do any more. No. I think it, it comes down yeah. to I think what we need to work on the next yeah. phase is um, the juggle that women are having between, you know, jumping from a career space to a baby space to a uh, household manager space, then, you know, and, and mm-hmm. juggling those roles moving yeah. forward. Um, and, know, and look, if we look at the the research that looks at the main kind of cognitive risk factors for women, it's, you know, how 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 willing and able are we to accept help from others? So that comes into this intensive mothering, mm-hmm. you know, I should do it all, I should be ever present, our expectations of what it's going to be like. And, and as you mentioned before, mm. Fee, before mm. you have the baby, you're going along, everything's very equal, social media is telling you it's going to be amazing, mm. and then you have the baby and your expectations can be quite different. So obviously the narrative in society can change to help women have more realistic expectations. Um, mm. But then there's also this idea of a sense of loss that a lot of women with postnatal depression will will report, which is a loss of identity, a loss of freedom, a loss of financial independence. Um, And so, you know, a lot of these things are, you know, can come from a person's background and cognitive makeup and experiences, but a lot of them are also very closely tied to what's going on in society society around expectations on women you know the availability of help and support how much we share that load um no or definitely yeah. and, it's, and it's just, again this this constant dance between expectations and in re- mm. and reality so yeah. these kind of conversations would not you know when women would have presented 30 years ago with mm-hmm. postnatal depression anxiety firstly probably far fewer people were unfortunately presenting and getting yeah. help but secondly the conversations of therapy therapy room would have been very different very different um and that's just because what you know, what women expected and what their pathways post having a baby were going to be was so different mm. to to today's woman. Um, but I think, you know, certainly a, certainly there, there is room. It's great that more women are coming to therapy, more women yeah. are getting help, you know, and, yeah. and there is a lot of work we can do in helping people through this critical time. Yeah. And, um, you know, making sure it's as, because it is so special and making sure it is yeah. as positive and, you know, and, and happy as it, as and it really can happy be. To, and, and look, and most women do not experience postnatal depression. Yes. You know, many women are, are having a, a lovely time with their babies. Mm. I guess we want the narrative to move from women having babies to men and women having families. Mm. That that Ooh. would be the mm. shift that we would – or, or women and women or all women, men yes. and men or whatever, or whatever but yes, it's, it's a it's – a, it's a family responsibility rather than just the person who gave birth to that and, child. Yep, and I think yep. society needs to kind of catch to up. shift. We need to. Yep. We need to. Women are kind of here with what we're doing, and then I think the I think rates of postnatal depression, anxiety, and just like as general um, general emotional distress that might not mm. meet clinical criteria, but just people's just feeling overwhelmed, frustrated. Yeah. Um, that I think that will improve if we can, as a society, improve. Yeah. Because you know, women it, aren't made to have babies on their own in an apartment or a house by themselves yeah. seven days a week. I mean, that is not the model for having, you know, a healthy, happy life. We need yep. to have lots of people involved. We need to have lots of support. And I would say at least half, and that's a, a significant amount of the women that I see at the Gidget Foundation, don't have any family 
in Sydney. So they're, mm. they're very socially isolated. They don't have someone who can just come and have a cup of tea and take the baby and let them have a nap. So, you know, getting that sense of it's not just one person's job to raise a baby, mm. it's more than one person's job. We need more people in there supporting women. And then coming back to the fact that we need we need structures in society and support networks yeah. to enable the shared care of that child. I mean, you could imagine what that would – I mean, I often think you could imagine what that look would look like. You know, it would look like – um, both, you know, both men and women being able to access a period of paid time. You yeah. would look like, I think, um, you know, highly subsidised childcare centres that, you know, had available places where I often think where you could go with your baby, um, you know, in the weeks after they were born where there was a, you know, early childhood nurse there and you formed mm -hmm. relationships and attachments with people there. And then you could transition your child into this place that you felt, um, you know, Securing, and there were people there that loved your baby, and then that would let you then transition to you know back to work in a way that didn't cause these mm. you know such stress and such yeah. disruption. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I really want to touch on men for a second, but I just wanted to clarify, or if one of you could clarify the difference between being depressed and having depression. Uh, because I find that the mm. word itself... Mm. Or do you um, mean being sad? Well, you know how mm. some people can f like have yep. the feelings of feeling mm. depressed, but then there's mm. the difference between someone having depression mm. because I do find that a lot of people, when you hear mm. that, they think, well, I don't need medication. I'm just feeling sad. Or mm. if you could just dist mm. distinguish so, that. Okay. Yep. Yeah, so probably, um, and you can elaborate yep. if I miss yep. anything out, yep. probably the pervasiveness of that mood shift. So if you feel sad for a day... Or two, and then that mood lifts, and you feel happy again for a few days, and mm. then you feel sad. That's probably a normal transition in and out of different emotions. But if you feel depressed on a daily basis and it's not lifting, that would be one criteria. Um, if you're crying a lot all of the time and it's uncontrollable, if it's impacting on your sleep or your appetite, and then if it's impacting on your ability to function. So we're talking about, you know, can I get out of bed in the morning? Can I go to work? Am I taking a shower? Am I keep keeping on top of washing my hair and cooking and eating good food, mm. all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, and then you also obviously have, you know, the the more severe expressions of that of am I having suicidal thoughts and feelings? Do I feel like and, – and there are two main cognitive styles that contribute to feeling globally depressed and that is – do I have a sense of hope that this is going to get better? Mm -hmm. So hopelessness is is a big warning sign and so is helplessness. So can I do anything to help myself feel better? Mm -hmm. And if we're feeling hopeless and we're feeling helpless and we're feeling stuck and it's impacting us on a day-to-day -day basis, well, that's probably a sign that you should be seeking professional help. Most definitely. Yeah. Yep. And I think even that role of medication, which is a which yep. is an important one, um, that, you know, once our mood has dropped to a certain, you know, once all those factors you just spoken about a present sometimes it is really hard for psychological intervention alone to provide the treatment provide, mm. provide the improvement that's required or to be effective and I think some of the research has shown that um you know women are really reluctant to take medication yeah in that's mm, period. that's yeah. why I was asking because I find yep. that there is this real judgment around yep. people wanting to seek that help and yep. going I need it yeah and it but but we know that it is safe and it is really effective. Yeah. So I think um, it is that idea that, um, in, you know, if often we talk with clients and say, you know, if you had, um, for example, you know, diabetes and needed a bit of help to regulate your sugar, would you be um, so hard on yourself in getting that help? Um, mm. So I think encouraging women to to get the help 
that's needed. Yeah, and sometimes therapy alone is just not going to cut it because once somebody is at um, a level of depression that's so mm. severe, often they can't do the work you need to do mm. in therapy without mm -hmm. the medication. So I've heard a psychiatrist mm. talk about it. It's like putting on your soccer boots before you go out and play the game of soccer. So the boots are the medication. You put the boots on and then you can go out in the field and learn all the skills gotcha. to play the game and get yep. back into the game. Great analogy. So, yeah, so the therapy is like the rules of the game and how do I score that goal and where am I going? Yeah. But it's really hard sometimes to play that if you don't have your boots on. Now, yeah. most people walking around have enough serotonin, et cetera, in their mm. brains. They've got the boots on. But if you don't, sometimes you need that help before you can get back in the game. Yeah, because yeah. part of this interview that I really wanted to highlight was mm. this idea of destigmatizing when you need help mm. and being That's willing different. to share and be open and yeah. honest. And I mean, I don't know for myself why I'm, I think I've just done a multitude of an array of different things throughout my life that have made me very happy to be open mm. if I'm needing help and things like that. But I have found that uh, through friendships, if someone's struggling and I'll suggest things, I'll always very willingly tell them my story first mm. so then they feel like they can share with me. Absolutely. And then it's that cycle of yeah. if we're all sharing a little bit more. Mm. You know, Which is why I think when you are you are a parent working in the space of of postnatal depression, it can be really helpful because you've got a mum sitting there going, but I've had the hardest day and my baby won't stop crying, et cetera, et cetera, and I feel like a failure and you're able to say, that's every mum. You know, mm. we've all been there. We've all had those hard days. You're doing everything right. You know, you're both still standing. You're doing an amazing job. It's it's much easier to say that when you've kind of lived that experience and it does reduce that stigma and oh, shame. Definitely. I mean, I, I share countless, yeah. countless little yeah. memories and stories of what it was like for me when I was in that space. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is I do think, um, you know, mothers groups, you know, they can be really helpful at times. They can be a little bit confronting for new mums but <laughs> what is useful is it's a space often for um for women to share their stories and I do yeah. think just in hearing people coming in and telling us about their stories in mother's group is that women are in general getting better at being honest and with the struggles yeah, and openly yeah. sharing their experiences yes because we get more than one we often get a mother's group and we get half the mother's group in because one person you must go see yeah. them absolutely and then, the, and then the rest of mother's group come in they say oh have you seen so and so have you yeah. seen so and so and so the they are they're all talking about it and they're sharing yeah. the fact that they've come to the Gidget Foundation and that it's been helpful and then that's encouraging other women to come in and so you get this snowball effect of the yeah. more people access the services the that's more they're right. talking about it um, and I do yeah. think that the Gidget Foundation is doing a, a wonderful Job of, job of making people feel less ashamed about coming forward when they're struggling and yeah there's a range some people might just pop in for one or two sessions yep. and that's all they need and you know and other people may be presenting with a completely different situation so I think that's the idea of there's no there's no um you know specific or, or fixed presentation that is mm. that this is when I need mm. to come in for a chat or this is when I need to seek treatment you know it differs yeah, yeah. Um, and as we have spoken about women so much throughout this and the feelings that they have through giving birth mm. before birth post-birth I'd love to know if you have any experiences or tales perhaps around mm. men and you know mm, what a father's yeah. going through during yeah. this time oh definitely um this is a you know this is a hard time for dads as well because I think increasingly you know fathers today they want to do this differently you know generally they mm. really want to be present they want to be available they have a completely different um different set of expectations of how they how they want to do this and they then often I think it can be quite isolating for dads because it's the first time they go you know I can't relate to a you know I the whole you know producing of the baby the birthing mm. of the baby the feeding of the baby they are you know they're the, they're often the sidekick um and yet they're often also they're absorbing 
really intense emotions. Um, mm. And they're often feeling a great amount of financial pressure. So yes. what I hear from a lot of dads is I can't do anything right. You know, I'm working mm. really long hours. I'm trying to, you know, earn money to support the family mm. while my wife's on maternity leave and then I come home and then I'm on again and I've got to be – yes, that's right. But but I don't really know what I'm doing because I haven't been there all day so I do everything mm. wrong. So my wife is angry at me and then she's depressed so I'm worried about her. So I think men are having, having oh. a lot of worries. Um, and there is a proportion, I can't remember the statistic again, but it's a, it's a significant percent of men whose wives have postnatal depression who will mm. then go on to experience depression Themselves. after the second or third month oh, definitely. when the baby comes. it's very hard to cut. You know, yeah. if things are falling apart at home yep. and, you know, you know, their partner who they, you know, exactly who and their partner and their baby, are, everyone's kind of in a bit of a hole. It's very yeah. hard for them to... To not take to that not, on and not mm. be anxious about their well-being. Uh, and then also another factor of, you know, if there has been a traumatic birth, if mm. baby has gone to special care, if mm. something has happened to mum, I have seen dads who have suffered post, oh, post-traumatic post stress yeah. disorder um, around that and feeling like they can't protect the people that they love. And what's often... And often they're not necessarily flagged. For, yeah. for getting treatment. So I've had a couple of fathers who, you know, witnessed really scary things in the births of their children. And um, it's to often takes them a year or so to kind of realise, mm. hey, I'm not doing so well. I'm, you know, yeah. I'm still wow. really anxious. I'm yeah. still... And they don't necessarily have the relationships where they talk about that oh, kind of thing definitely. openly the way that women might. Mm. Do you find that um, fragile masculinity or toxic masculinity comes into play with any of your clients, patients? I have. Um, can I? You go. Yeah. Look, I think in the men over the course of my working life, I've probably seen that impact more the older men that I've worked with who have been stuck in that role for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you know, reflecting on the kind of triggers and worries and concerns for men versus women, often this sense of um, that you know, incredible amounts of financial pressure or having to be, you know, the sole breadwinner or the strong person that can't talk about their emotions, et cetera, et cetera, that will kind of lead to a crisis point where it all just falls apart. And then you see the men really suffering because they don't necessarily have other roles or facets of themselves to fall back on. Mm -hmm. So this sense of, um, you know, the mother being the stay-at-home nurturer and the father being, you know, the strong one that goes out and provides is damaging for women, but it actually also Mm -hmm. is really damaging for men Mm -hmm. um, and what it does for their mental health but I have to say in in the younger I'm not quite sure to what extent extent. it's definitely there in some in some relationships that we see where they're struggling with that almost definitely and look I think it's also not even though I think um, men in general are uh, you know and young fathers you know new fathers are certainly coming to that with a different set of expectations desire Mm. to be present Mm. and emotionally available that it would be premature and naive to say that, you know, that there's still not massive issues of power imbalance mm. in, mm. you know, in many relationships and yeah. issues such as emotional abuse, DV. Yeah. They, you know, they do come when, a, when, when um, a woman's pregnant and in that time where they just had the new baby and maybe a little bit more isolated, more vulnerable, mm. those, um, you know, issues of, you know, emotional and physical abuse are more present Mm. then. So certainly we do. And we do see see people wielding that financial hammer, right? Like I'm going out, Mm. I'm earning the money. Mm. So, um, you know, what I say goes or Mm. I've been at work all day, I've been working hard, don't ask me to do anything when I get home. We do do see that sometimes. That's something I see and then um, Mm. male social lives don't change as much. 
That's right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, that is, that yeah. is still Because, by, you know, you've present. had this baby, you're feeding them every three hours, you are very attached to the home and to the baby, and that's just not the case for men. Mm. You know, they're still at the house most days. If something's on after work, they can just go. Someone else is home with, with the baby. So, it... it, mm. it can happen that I, there's a very big divide in there. And I think that idea, I mean, I've often seen, um, you know, seen couples where men, you know, men will men will have to adjust that I don't, you know, if there's been a more traditional role where um, the female's kind of been looking after the male a little bit, where, you know, a little bit more, I'm, you know, I'm your nurturer, I'm, you know, looking after mm-hmm. you, I'm there for you, that, you know, men can have periods of hurt, you know, hurt feelings, feeling rejected, who's looking after me, mm-hmm. you know, a, kind yeah. of a very, a rather immature response, but still, still we see that. Wow. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Mm-hmm. I, I hope you both have also. Before I head to my final question, uh, where can everyone find you both? Uh, well, we both work in North Sydney yep. in private practice. So if you look us up. We'll be there. Um, and also, I guess, by calling the Gidget Foundation. Yeah. Um, that's where we are. And again, we're just part of a team of, you know, many exactly very well-trained, experienced clinicians mm. who are all available. Amazing. I will put all of your details in the show notes for anyone who would love to find them. Uh, so my final question uh, and something I'd like to explore as, is what we want our world to look like. And so the Veil of Ignorance thought experiment simply allows us to take a blank canvas and imagine a world we want from a place of not knowing where we would end up. So that's being where we're born, our gender or our socioeconomic status. So putting the veil on, what does this world look like for you within your area of either work, life or experience? Mm. Mm. So, I I mean, I guess I could come back to what I mentioned earlier, which is the idea of men and women raising families together as a collective rather than it all being on the mother. Mm-hmm. Most definitely, a more shared experience. Um, mm. People having multiple roles. So mm. I think this idea that we've moved as a society from, if we you know go back go back to the nineteen fifties, everyone had very defined roles, and mm. that's changing. Um, so I think women have expanded their roles, the number of roles, the number of hats that they have, and I think the next phase is for men to do the same. And um, you know, I think that yeah, will, absolutely that will be critical. Yeah, and you know, and when you when you are raising young daughters and Mm. young women and they're talking about their dreams and aspirations I want them to feel like whatever they're working on whatever they're passionate about is going to continue for them um, once they have a family and and so you can encourage them to go out and do whatever they want to do and feel like they can still have the family and the the load of that will be shared but they can still pursue their dreams most definitely and Mm. yeah and they pursue their dreams um, have their voice heard Um, there was a there was a point that was I think was an article you flicked me uh, last week, and it was a line it was a line of a, it was a, a narrative about a forty year old woman and what her experience was, and there was a line in there saying you know just because I got married and decided to have children um, somehow meant that I would be absorbing all the mon- mundane jobs in the world, and it was and that I mean that would be something yep. if that changed for, that our, for our daughters that just because you're the mum and you're the woman that that actually the boring stuff is shared. Yeah. And that it probably be. won't happen in Australia until we have a young female prime minister like, like they do in Finland. That's right. <laughs> because it was a 34-year-old female prime minister who's introduced that yep. seven months for both parents. So that's, that's what we the need. critical factor. Yeah, I think that's what we need. Yeah. yeah. Well, isn't that also that um, when women are in when women are in leadership positions, everyone thrives? Hmm. That's right. Yeah. Thank you both so much. Thank, Thank you. you. 
Hey everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Modern Women. If this content is delivering value to you, it would be so helpful and appreciated if you head to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher and rate and review us as that helps us build this incredible community. And ultimately, that is what this is all about, building this community as big as we can to help as many women as possible, and all of your ratings and reviews truly help with that. And before I go, a shout out to Chunky Love for the original music and to Mr. Darren Lake over at Podpace for helping me produce this show for all of you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.